But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us uh, the illustration and the teachings that Paul gave to the Galatians as they found themselves in legalism. Lord, I pray that you would free us from legalism. I pray that you would give us understanding and what it means to be free in you. Again, we thank you that as we were dead and without hope that you came and rescued us through the sacrifice of your son. We thank you also that as we became your sons, that you gave us your spirit. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. He is the seal. And Lord, we thank you for that assurance. Lord, I pray that we would walk in that assurance. We would walk in that freedom. But Lord, help us not to abuse our liberty in you. You've saved us and you've called us to serve one another. You've called us to serve you. Sometimes we forget what liberty is all about, and that is the ability to serve out of love. So we ask that our hearts would be changed, that we might be selfless, so that we might honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you'd like again to turn to Galatians chapter 4, that's where we'll be. We're just going to cover four verses today. Trust that you all brought your picnic gear. We're going to be having a church picnic later. Trust that you'll be able to be there. Looks like a good day. We're going to be looking at slavery today. Going back to slavery. You remember that last week we were talking about how God took us from being a slave to being a son. But here, these people want to go back to their slavery. You know, if you think about slavery in America, which was a real blight on our nation. One of the names that comes to the forefront was Harriet Tubman. You know, it was in 1848 that Harriet, a Baltimore slave, escaped to Philadelphia and her freedom. 1840, actually 1849, so just before the Civil War. She returned in 1850 to guide her sister and two nieces to freedom, and then other relatives, including her aged parents. And eventually, between 60 and 300, depending on how you calculate, she led that many slaves to freedom. Now think about that. One person leading that many people to freedom in the north. At one time, the southern reward for Harriet for her capture stood at an astounding, back then, 1800s, an astounding $40,000 was on her head. That's a huge amount of money for that day and age. And again, she felt that she was being led by God to bring the slaves out of the south and the freedom into the north. Now, why do I bring up that, that illustration of Harriet Tubman? Wouldn't it have been odd if some of those slaves decided they wanted to go back south? I don't mean to rescue. I'm saying because they wanted to be slaves. I don't like my freedom. I want to go back to slavery. Isn't that an odd thought? I want my slavery? You know, it's sad, but in, in this day and age, they say there are more slaves around the world today than there was even in the 1800s. Talking today. A lot of slavery going on. Can you imagine any of them wanting to go back to their slavery? 
What a ridiculous thought. And yet as we go to Galatians, these people in the Galatian churches wanted to go back to their slavery under the law. That's what he's talking about in verses 8 to 11. Going back from getting out of slavery to sonship and now wanting to go back under the law. And Paul basically says, what a ridiculous thought. Why would you ever consider that? As ridiculous as a, a physical slave wanting to go back to the south in the 1800s. Now again, as we look at Galatians, let me just remind you of a couple things. Remember that Paul was reminding the Galatians of his own personal testimony in, in Galatians 1 and 2. He does that for a couple reasons. He, wanna, he wants to cement the authority that he has to speak truth, but he also wants to show the Galatian church that, you know what, he himself was in slavery and freed by the Lord. And then he turns the page in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, and talks about the Spirit of God. He, appeared, he appealed to their experience in the Spirit. Look at verse 2. Did, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? By the way, the Spirit of God is a huge factor in the book of Galatians. When you come to the fact of freedom in Christ, legalism versus liberty, or if you say it this way, as far as being able to serve out of love, it all has to play through the fact that we are... We are um, that the Spirit of God has taken residence in us. In other words, we can abuse our liberty in Christ. We can abuse the freedom that Christ has given us if we don't remember that the Spirit of God is living within me. Okay, do you see what I'm saying? In other words, God doesn't free us to do as we please. God frees us to do as He pleases. And so He reminds them of the fact that they have experienced the Holy Spirit living within them. Within them. And then he argues with them about the basis of uh, biblical history and theology in chapters uh, 3, verses 6 to 14. He brings up Abraham. And so he's going back and he's trying to come after every different angle of saying, listen, why would you ever want to go under the law? I mean, look at me, my testimony. Remember, you have the Spirit. The Spirit wasn't given because of the law. Abraham, the promise, that wasn't given because of the law. The law came hundreds of years after Abraham. And then he uses everyday example, everyday life examples in chapter 4, actually chapter 3, but also chapters 4, 1 to 7. And this is where he gets into again. You were like a slave under the law, but now God has given you, made you a son. Not only a son, but he's made you an heir. And I think the greatest thing that we have inherited up to this point in time, actually the greatest person that we have inherited, as it were, it's the beginning of our inheritance, is again, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now think about that. What could be greater than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life? What greater gift could God ever give you up to this point? I mean, salvation, but because you are saved, he is giving, given the third person of the Trinity to reside within you, to guide you, to empower you, to convict you. That's, the, that's part of the inheritance. He, he went from, we went from being a slave to a son to an heir, as verse 7 says, through Christ. And even within our heart, the spirit of his son into your hearts cry out, Abba, Father. We have an intimate relationship with God. You see all the blessings that we have because we are in Christ, because we are not depending on the law. And now in verse 8, I think he switches gears a little bit and he says, listen, let me show you the freedom that you have as a son. Why would you ever go back to the law? Look at their past bondage. Verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. That was, that was their past bondage. 
Again, we're talking about the freedom of being a son. They weren't free before. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not free. You're in bondage. You're in bondage to your sin. You're in bondage to Satan. You're in bondage to selfishness. And your, and your fate is, is damnation and hell. That's what these were, these individuals. They did not know God. You serve those by nature are not gods. In other words, he's speaking about pagan religions and basically man's religions. You were, you were held in the grip of things that were not gods, but you were following them. I mean, isn't it ridiculous when you watch somebody pray before an, a stone idol? But isn't it also just as ridiculous when they pray to a, a dead saint? This is ridiculous. Or to pray before to the mother of God, supposedly Mary. You know, isn't that ridiculous? We still have paganism alive and well today. And, and these, these Galatian uh, believers, they are believers, but their past was bondage. You didn't know God. That word know there is the word idol, which means to perceive, to be able to examine. In other words, there was no hope for you to be able to find God because unless God wants to reveal himself to us, we cannot find him. Do we understand that? If you know God, if you know Jesus Christ today, it's because God chose to reveal himself to you. Without that, there's no hope. And so he uses a specific word know, which means to like investigate. Think of Sherlock Holmes. Always digging up the facts, putting them together, coming to the right conclusion. Always by the last three minutes of the show, right? But when it comes to um, when it comes to people, they cannot find God on their own. And so he says, "But indeed, when you did not know God, you, you serve those which by nature are not gods. You weren't going in the right direction. It wasn't like you had many gods following to the real God. It's that you were over here and they weren't gods at all. They were idols. They were your own making. They were self-religion, self-righteousness. You know, I, I thought it'd be interesting to look at our mind before salvation. What was your mind like before salvation? And I, I think the uh, scripture has a lot to say about the mind and what it was like before salvation. And I gave them to you in your outline there. The, the first thing about the unsaved mind is that it's worthless. He says in Romans one twenty eight, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, there's that, there's that word knowledge again. We're going to be seeing a lot about knowledge. Remember that. The actual word we're going to look at is called gnosis. Gnosis. Knowledge. But Romans one twenty eight says, when they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. The idea of debased means worthless. It's a metallurgical term. Used of metals. It was used by refiners to speak of metals they had to discard because of impurities. Now think about that. A metal that wasn't pure couldn't be used, let's say, even especially in coinage. They had to keep purifying it. But when it was in the impure state... It was called debased, worthless, can't use it for that. If you're trying to do iron and too many impurities, can't use it, too weak. So this is a term, this word debased mind. Now notice, a mind, debased mind. It's a worthless mind. It has too many impurities. It needs to be discarded. The idea, in fact, if you see Romans 1, it talks about how they had fallen into sexual sin and sensual sin and then homosexual sin, and finally God gave them over Kind of abandonment from God. By the way, 
countries, nations, civilizations go through a very similar pattern. Uh, sexual revolution, homosexual revolution, debased mind, end of civilization in that particular area. Does that, look, does that sound familiar to you? Did we have a sexual revolution? 60s. Homosexual revolution? 80s. Do you think right now we are living in a nation with a debased mind as a whole? They can't think straight? Look at CNN. Just, just listen to the news and their theories on how they're going to create solutions. But the point is, is that's even to individuals. Worthless thinking can't ascend to God, can't follow God. In fact, the mind doesn't go upward, it goes downward. It spirals downward. How about number two, fleshly? That's another characteristic of the unsaved mind. It's carnal, Romans 8, 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God. The idea of carnal means fleshly or just, just basically this, focused on me. In other words, it um, cares only for itself, its goals, its desires. It's the opposite of caring for what God wants. That's a characteristic of the unsaved mind. Number three, it's vain in the futility of their mind, Ephesians says. The futility, speaking of the unsaved. It fails to produce the desired result. It never succeeds. It's useless. It has no lasting purpose. It's vain. It just is empty. It can't, it can't think straight spiritually. How about number four? It's defiled. Defiled. Titus 1.15, it's defiled, unbelieving, but even their mind and consciences are defiled. Uh, defiled means stained. Uh, you know, I remember one time I had a pen, and I had an... I, I'm, I'm a busy person, click, 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 and I'm always doing something. And uh, it ended up uh, popping, you know, stained. And uh, by the way, once it happens, throw the shirt away, right? You know, you're not going to, you know, can't whisk that out, I don't think. But uh, the point is, is that, you know, it's gone. So that's the, that's the word for defiled, stained. In other words, stained by sin. The unsaved mind is stained by sin. It only has one direction and it's not towards God. And number five, it's hostile. Colossians 1.21, once were, they were once alienated, again, the unsaved, alienated, and enemies in their mind. The word enemies means actively hating. Actively hating, that's a very severe term. Actively hated. Who? God. God. God, his way, all about God. And then finally, corrupt. Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds. The idea of, by the way, corrupt. Take an apple, throw it, well, not throw it, put it outside on my porch. Come back in about three weeks. What happens? It's rotten. The idea of corruption is it's getting worse. You don't put the apple out and all of a sudden, oh, isn't that just perfect? That's a perfect apple after a month. It gets worse. Corrupt means it's getting worse. It's a downward spiral. That's how Paul uh, explained. In fact, these are all from Paul. Uh, That's how Paul would look at the mind. That's how God looks at the mind. Before salvation, we had a worthless, fleshly, vain, defiled, hostile, corrupt mind. Think of those, each one of those words like a... um, a nail in a coffin. Worthless, corrupt, vain, impure, ungodly, hating, you know, and, and you're just pounding the nails in. It's like a sealed case. There was no hope. 
I mean, that's what Paul is saying when he's saying, when you did not know God, that, that was what you were facing. Before you knew God, there was no hope. You weren't going in the right direction. You were running exactly opposite. That's why Corinthians 2 says this, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. There's no hope. He doesn't discern. Have you ever talked to your unsaved friend or unsaved relative or maybe a family member and you're telling them a gospel, it's clear and it's not registering? Like, why can't they get it? Because their mind is fleshly and vain and defiled and hostile. That's why they don't get it. it actually, if you could say it this way, what is spiritual warfare? What is, why do we teach and preach? Well, it's a battle for the mind. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Would you go there for a minute? Just keep your hand in Galatians. I'm trying to paint a very bleak picture. Without Jesus Christ invading your life, without the Holy Spirit opening your eyes, you would never have come to him. So what is our purpose in life? I mean, as far as as believers telling others, it's about sharing truth. Look at this, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10.3. For though we walk in the flesh, I mean, you're fleshly, you're literally physical, we do not war according to the flesh. Our warfare is not fleshly. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, again, fleshly, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Well, what are these strongholds? Casting down arguments. What do you mean? Well, arguments against God. Arguments against Is Jesus Christ the only Savior? That's an argument that the world has. How could he be the only Savior? How can only one religion really be true? That's one of the arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge, notice that word knowledge, of God. Bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. That, if you want to say, what is your whole purpose on this earth pretty much, John? It's right there. To present truth and tear down the thoughts and the intentions that are out there in your hearts and others as to what's against God and, and help you to understand what is truth. And when you, when you share the truth with a, a person, that's what you're doing. You're, you're trying to tear down the fortresses that have been built up in that person's life of explaining how to get to God, which is opposed to what the true path is to God. Do you see what I'm saying? We're tearing down... Fortresses. We're, we're casting down arguments and every, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That's really spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare, sometimes I hear, well, it's, you know, going around and casting out demons and, you know, and territorial demons and, you know, all this other, like, demons. That's not spiritual warfare. That's spiritual warfare right there. Spiritual warfare is tearing down the philosophies, the ideologies, the fortresses that are out there that keep people from understanding God, receiving God, and following God. So when you say, I'm a, I'm a spiritual warrior, what you're doing is you're using the Word of God to, again, affect the mind and the heart of the person. Well, look at here, verse 9. But now, after you have known God, See, there's been a change. You didn't know God, but now you know God. I I went through that whole thing about the mind because I want you to know this. If you're, again, saved, it's because God did something in your life because you're moving away from God. And and see, that just makes me want to worship Him all the more. I mean, it was such a helpless situation, a hopeless situation. 
But here the Galatians, Paul says, listen, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by Him, he, he actually breaks this verse 9 into two parts. After you have known God, that's active, something that you've done. You, you've known God. Remember what John 1.10 says? John 1.10 says this, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Didn't know him. And we were part of that world that didn't know God. But something happened in these guys' lives where they knew God. Well, I, actually, we find out in Matthew 11.27, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. How did Diane Davis come to know the, the Father? Because the Son chose to reveal to her who the Father was. That's how it plays out, through the Spirit. Okay, The Spirit of God comes and convicts our hearts, <laughs> actually opens up our hearts, opens up our minds, shows us the truth, gives us a desire to move in that direction, and allows us to receive him. See, the idea is that it's the work of the Spirit. It's actually this, the work of the Trinity is what takes, is what takes to have a person saved. Uh, Philip Ryken says this, In the Bible, the knowledge of God is always personal. This, I'm trying to show you this word, no. It involves an intimate encounter with God the Father through the Spirit of His Son. Christianity is not a matter of what we know. It is a matter of whom we know. Whom we know. Actually, let's go one step farther. An even better way to say this is that Christianity is a matter of who knows us. Look at the second part. Or rather, are known by God. Do you see what he's just done here? He switched gears. He said, well, you know God. Well, rather that you're known by Him. That's in the passive. Why did I come to Jesus Christ? Because I knew God. I received Christ. I knew the truth. I received the Savior. Ah, but actually it was because He knew me. He was the one that started the process. It's like uh, Jesus says in John 10, remember I am the good shepherd, that passage, I am the good shepherd. And I, now again, this word no, this word gnosis, no. I mean, every one of these passages, no. It's knowledge, it's understanding, it's here, it's thinking. Jesus says, I know my sheep. I know my sheep and am known by my own. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Why? Because I know them. If, you've been part, if you're part of the family of God, it's because Jesus sought to know you. God the Father sought to bring you into his family. In fact, I left in your outline the order of salvation. <coughs> because again, this is so critical for us to, to, know, uh, to understand. This, this hugely affects the way you evangelize. The question is this, am I trying to convince this person of salvation in Christ? Or do I understand that really I can throw truth out, but it really takes the Spirit of God to do the convincing? I can't do the convincing. I cannot convince a fleshly carnal heart that they need Jesus Christ. I cannot do it. It's, it's outside of my, the possibilities. But I can plant seeds. <laughs> I can share truth. By the way, I can pray. I can pray that God will work because I know that only if God works will it happen. Look at the order of salvation. If you go to Romans chapter 8, um, Paul actually throws a number of these terms out in a sequential order. 
I really need to get to verse 29, but look at verse 28, because this is an assurance. He says, We know all things that work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good to all men. Is that true? Is that true? To all men? No. To those who are called according to His purpose. Are you called according to His purpose? Are you one of His kids? If you're one of His kids, all things work together for good in your life. But look at verse 29. For whom He foreknew. This starts the process. In other words, what's the process of salvation? How did it happen in my life? How did it happen in yours? The order. Well, first of all, foreknowledge. He foreknew. And, and I don't believe, because again, if you track it in Scripture, it's, He's not just saying that He knew all things like He's omniscient. Foreknew means that he set his love on certain people. I know, we're getting into election, but that's really truth. Foreknowledge means that he determined to show his love towards certain people. And then he also predestined. Predestined means to set their destiny. In other words, this is I have set my love on him and I'm going to bring him to this end. That's what predestined means. When I went to my mother's a couple weeks ago for Fourth of July party, I predestined to end up in Dunk or in Brockton, New York. I didn't predestine just say, you know, flip the coin. I'm not sure where I'm going to end up. I destined to end there. And those he destined to end at a certain place, he called. Now, what does the call mean? The call means there's a, he, he's, he, it's an inward. By the way, there's an external call, whosoever will. And by the way, I believe in election, but I also believe in preaching the gospel to whomsoever will. Anybody can receive Christ. I do know this, though, that those who are called will. Okay? So he predestined, he called. In other words, calling is the unction. It's the fact of giving the person a desire to want to receive Jesus Christ. Remember what happened? My mind was hostile and fleshly and worthless. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. But as God works in, through, in me through, through his spirit, all of a sudden things start to make sense. Wait a second. I am a sinner. I need a savior. I am condemned. That's the calling. In other words, some will call it the effectual calling. It's bringing the person to salvation. By the way, it's, it's also nurturing the will so that the person wants to receive. You might say, do you believe in free will? What do you think my answer would be? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can, God, because God created us in his image, you are free. But the only thing is, is when you have a hostile mind to God, are you going to receive him? He's got to change that hostility. He's got to give you understanding. So we are called. And then, the, actually, the word that's not in Romans, because Paul doesn't give a complete order, but we find in other places. I believe the next thing that happens is he's nurturing you, and then he regenerates you, which is bringing you alive from dead to life. And then immediately after that, there's repentance and faith, which is conversion. In other words, this is how it goes. He foreknew, I set my love, and this is the destination. And calling, I'm nurturing, and now I've got to bring him to life so that he can repent and have faith and believe in who I am. And at that very moment, when I believe on Jesus Christ, I'm justified. I'm declared righteous. 
Christ's sacrifice is applied to my spiritual life. I am forgiven and made a son. Do you see how that process goes? And then what's the next thing? What we've been dealing with in in Galatians chapter 4. He makes us a son. Sonship doesn't come before justification. It comes right after. As soon as he declares me righteous, he, he brings me into his family because I am forgiven. I'm one of his. Ultimately, to become an heir. He places me as a son. He doesn't keep me out there as a slave. Oh, you're forgiven, but you don't have any of the inheritance. No, no, you're brought right into the family of God. Because again, he sees, he sees Christ when he looks at me because I'm in Christ. So that's what he says. That's what he's getting at when he says, verse 9, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God. It had to be God that started the process. It's an, salvation is entirely of God. Unfortunately, sinful man always wants to take a piece of the action. <laughs> it's always of God. And it's the Trinity that's involved. It's the Father calling, Christ sacrificing, and the Holy Spirit that's giving you the ability to believe. I mean, what should we say? Praise God. We're not here because we got smart. We're here because God had mercy. And we go out and telling other peoples of the mercy they had towards us. Praying that they also will understand, but if they do, what is it? It's because God worked in their heart. By the way, that does take a lot of pressure off me, doesn't it? What does he say in Scripture? Just preach. That's all it is. That's how, he say, that's how people get saved. Teaching the Word. I don't, I don't mean preachers. First Corinthians 21 says, The world through wisdom did not know God. See, they're in the same state. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, proclaimed to save those who believe. Hear ye, hear ye. That's what they used to do back 400 years ago, right? <laughs> A town crier. You know, some big message was going to be, and they hire or get someone to you know, go through the town. Hear ye, hear ye. That's all we are, town criers. Hey, let me tell you, there's salvation found in Christ. Hey, let me tell you, your sins can be forgiven. You can be made a son of God. It's not because of me. It's not that I got smart. It's just that God gave me the message and I received it and I'm giving you the message. That's all that is. Just planting seeds. That's how we really get to know. That's how we are known by God because of the message preached. But, but notice this. See, they had this new life, this, this new enlightenment, but now they have a new enslavement because the second part of verse 9 says, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? How is it that after all this and God bringing you to salvation, you're running back to the weak and beggarly elements? But weak, by the way, is impotent. And the beggarly is destitute. That's what those words mean. Impotent and destitute. How is it that you're running back to the impotent and destitute elements? By the way, the elements there is referring to the primary things. It it, it was used of alphabet. If any of you have like five or six years old or four year olds at home, what do you do? What do you teach them? A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I'm not going to sing the rest. You know it. Um, That's what he's saying. That's what that word elements was used for, the elementary things. So he's looking at this group of Christians and he's saying, listen, look at all that God has done for you. Not only know God, but you are known by God. Look at all the process he's taking. Now you're going back to the law? Somehow thinking that that's going to make you more sanctified? You're going back to the elements of ABC? 
You're going back to human religion. That's what they were doing. You remember, that's the whole point. The Judaizers came in after Paul and were trying to get these Gentiles and Jews to go back to the legalistic system of the Mosaic Law. I can't believe you're trying to go back to the ABCs. Look at all that God did for you. I mean, look at the specifics. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. That's the Jewish calendar there. You're trying to go back to the Jewish law, thinking that Jesus Christ is not enough, that somehow you have to have more in your life than Jesus Christ. That's legalism. Legalism is the religion of human achievement. It argues that spirituality is based on Christ plus works. That's what they were doing. I need something more than Christ. Now, if I just told you that, just that, what would you say to me? That's so foolish. Why would you be so simplistic? Why why would you add to the perfection of the gospel? Well, that's what these people were doing. In fact, if you go to Colossians chapter 2, you see the same thing, except these were believers in Colossae, but they were having the same problems with the legalistic Judaizers. He actually gets a little more specific of their problems. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Verse 16. Actually, before you go to verse 16, go to verse 9. Because Paul lays down a very clear delineation of of how complete we are in Christ. Verse 9. For in Him, that's Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's complete. He's he's God. And you are, you are Christians. You are complete in Him. I don't need anything else. I don't need the law. What was happening in Colossae was the same thing happened in Galatians. This was a huge problem. People were getting saved, but then there was others that were coming along. We're law keepers. And if you really want to be a good Christian, you need to keep the law. And so Paul in verse 16 says, Let no one judge you in food or drink. By the way, what is that food or drink? Dietary law. Remember the Jews couldn't eat pig? And they were telling me, Listen, man, if you eat pig, you're just not as spiritual as us because we don't eat pig. How about this? In regard to festivals, what were they encouraging? Probably all the feasts and the festivals of Israel. In other words, you've got to keep the Passover. You've got to do the, you know, the, um, the feasts, the trumpets and all that. You have to keep all the, all the feasts and all the, all the sacrifices. See, those are still in effect. You've got to... A new moon, that's a, referring to the lunar calendar, like first day of the month. In other words, you have to go by the Jewish calendar, all the things that the Jew had to do. You, if you're going to be a good Christian, you've got to do it. Or Sabbaths, again, the Sabbath was the sign to Israel of the Old Covenant. We are not Sabbath keepers. I know we have some in this area that are Sabbath keepers. They, they, are, they are really going very close to a major danger in that. Why? Because the sign of the Sabbath was to the Jew that the Israel was in covenant with uh, Jehovah. Jesus Christ came. He is our Sabbath, it says. Okay? In fact, look at verse 17. Because this answers, well, what, should I be a Sabbath keeper? Which, look at the food, drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbath, Colossians 2.17, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substances of a Christ. That's just, a, that's just a, a, a shadow. In other words, the Sabbath was a shadow. The Passover was a shadow. The, 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 uh, all the festivals were a shadow of Jesus Christ. But now Jesus Christ came. In fact, it even says this, we do not need to observe the Passover because 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. We don't need, that's why I don't keep the Passover. Christ fulfilled it. 
Christ is our meat, as it were. Christ is our rest, Hebrews chapter 4. He's everything to us. We don't have to keep the law because Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He's the substance, a shadow. If, well, you can, I can see my shadow right here. It's right there because of that light. But that's not the substance. I'm the substance. And the Old Testament law was, was looking towards Christ and it was, it was shadowing Christ. It was pointing towards Christ, but it wasn't Christ. And when Christ came, we don't need the shadow anymore. So what's the point? True spirituality does not consist merely in keeping external laws, but of having an inner relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, some might say, well, but... I mean, now think about a Jew who for 55 years of his life kept the Old Testament laws, and now all of a sudden, at 55 years old, he became a Christian. And the, ta- the time came to be, go to Passover, and he knows in his heart that it doesn't save him, but it's like, oh, I really want to go to Passover because my conscience says I should be there. You see the conflict there? I like what Philip Ryken said about this whole thing. When it comes to keeping these religious days and stuff, there's an eternity of difference between the option, optional observance of a day and making it mandatory as a means of justification. There's a difference. Does it mean that you never could keep a special day in your own life? No. In fact, let me read this in Romans 14. Because Paul addresses it in Romans. He says, listen, I know some of you, your consciences are like seared. You need to be there because you've been there for all these... He says this, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Let him be convinced in his own mind, his intent. Verse 6, he who observes a day, observes it, catches, to the Lord. Now there's other people who do not observe the day. To the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, dietary laws, eats it to the Lord. He who gives thanks, and, to, and, and he who does not eat, to the Lord, he does not eat. He says, listen, you know, we're all different. Remember we were talking about the family and how we have differences, and we even brought up the idea of music. You know, last couple of weeks, in fact, someone left last week and said, is there a problem? Because you're talking about differences and, like, you know, conflicts. And I said, you know what, there is no problem. I always try to bring up a hot topic when there is no problem. But the point is, is this. You were brought into a family. You're joint heirs with Christ if you are in Christ, if you have received Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven, you're a son, and you're an heir. But the point is this, we need to learn to function well together. And what sometimes gets in our way, now catch this, is legalism. Now, I'm not talking about legalism that says this, that you must obey the Old Testament law to be saved. The legalism I'm referring to and again, I'm, I'm, I'm making this as an application. Because again, understand, in Galatians, what they were dealing with is they were saying, if you're going to be a super Christian and actually part of your salvation, you need to follow the law. Do you get my point? That's Galatians. But there's a close cousin, a, kin, a kissing cousin, as it were. And, and it's legalism that says this. My standard doesn't get you saved. But my standard is really the spiritual way. Do you see how that legalism plays out? And by the way, it's, it's alive and well in churches. Legalism is alive and well in churches. It's, as uh, Max Licato says this, says it this way, legalism that makes my opinion your burden. See, what I believe is right is your burden. You just need to follow me. It makes my opinion 
your boundary. Don't go beyond my, because this is my opinion. And makes my opinion your obligation. We look at Paul and how he approached uh, the Galatians and we say, you know, legalism is so bad. You're trying to get people saved through the law. But legalism, on the other hand, is also this. When somehow I think that my, my way is the best way and my way should be your way and if you don't follow my way, then you're wrong. Now again, I'm not talking my way being this, that I feel that you should be able to lie. That's not my way, that's God's way. That's God's law. I'm saying there's things in the church that we might say, well, this, well, I can even name some. There's a foam cross. For some of you, if that wasn't up here this morning, you might have really gotten upset. That, that's legalism. Because there's nowhere in Scripture that says the church has to have a cross. If we pass the plate, did you notice we didn't pass the plate today? But if I pass the plate, what would you do? No, that's a house rule. That's not, a, that's not God's rule. Do you see the difference? If some of you may have a glass of wine at dinner. Wait, that's a house rule. If some of you even have a pierced ear, that's a house rule. Okay, see, there's a lot of house rules. But n- notice what, what did Paul say in Romans 14? One person esteems another uh, one day above another, another esteems every day. Uh, that's the, 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 uh, no, that's the wrong verse. Where does it say? Where he, do not judge. Oh, I can't believe it. Uh, I just read it to you. Help me out, guys. Don't let me drown. You let me drown on my own. Thank you. Oh, come on. Come on, come on, come on. Uh, oh, 2.16. Yeah, excuse me. It's not in Galatians. Yeah, do not judge one another. <laughs> yeah, you just love to see me drown. <laughs> See, the point is... What's that? That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Steve can always come through for me. <laughs> See, you know what the point is? Is We're not looking to be cutty, cut, cut, cookie-cutter Christians. You're saying, just close it down. I hear you. <laughs> you know, all march by the same drumbeat. Why? This is why, guys. We all come from a different background. Now again, the standard, I'm not talking about God's law here. I'm talking about our own preferences. When you became a son, you, you, you received the Spirit of God and it's the Spirit of God that should lead you. This idea that we make up rules that makes us, this is where you need to live because it makes us feel good that we're all on the same page is really not biblical. Now again, I believe in standards. We're going to look at this more in a few weeks. I'm not saying that you don't have standards. We all need to have high, high standards. But when my standard, my opinion has to become your opinion, I think we've entered into this legalistic realm. Okay? Robert Roberts said this, there's something comfortable about reducing Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts. There's something comfortable about that. Whether your list comes from a mindless fundamentalism or mindless liberalism, you always know where you stand, and this helps reduce anxiety. Do's and don't-ism has the advantage that you don't need wisdom. See, a do-and-don't system, you don't need wisdom. You don't have to think subtly or make hard choices. You don't have to relate personally to the demanding and a loving Lord. You don't have to do any of that because you know the do's and don'ts. You're in your little box, and everybody's happy with you because you're doing their list. 
What I'm calling you to do is this. Let's make sure we're thinking biblically. God's Spirit is in us, and we need to, and we need to approach God like a son. What does a son do? I want to please the Father. I love the Father, and that's why I want to follow the Father with the Spirit's help. Do you see what I'm saying? Legalism, on the other hand, like in Colossians 2.16 says, makes us judgmental. Let us not judge one another. In fact, uh, Kent Hughes says this of legalism. When you find yourself legalistic, and I don't mean high standards, be careful how I'm saying this, it makes us judgmental, it makes us joyless, it demands uniformity, and it produces a surface faith. Why do I say surface faith? Because we look at the externals and somehow we forget that the deadly sins are coveting and gossiping and slandering and bitterness and hatred and pride and the fear of man. And somehow we think because we have our little box and we're doing the externals, God is happy with me. Do you see what I'm saying? So again, I just throw this out to you. Are we truly, you know, we look at the Galatians and say, well, sure, that's wrong. How could they be so legalistic? You think they can, you know, replace Christ? Well, obviously that was a heresy. But you know, legalism, there's a comfortableness about legalism, isn't there? There's, it's real comfortable. I mean, it's like I just do these things and God is happy with me and I know that I'm okay and I can go on and do the rest of whatever. You can be legalistic in your giving. I don't believe that the tithe is for the New Testament. <gasps> the pastor said that? I can't, oh, I won't tithe then, I won't give. I didn't say that. The word in, the, the word in Corinthians 8 about giving is, is the word cherish, which is grace. In other words, if you just found out now, you, you're saying that I don't have to tithe 10%? Yeah, actually, that's the Old Testament Jew. But if you stop giving right now, what does that tell you about your heart? You didn't have it in the first place. You thought because you were in the box, you could spend the rest of the nine, 90% on yourself. See, really, giving should be from the heart. It's I love God, I love the Father, I want to please Him, I want to sacrifice for Him and His kingdom. And I'm giving out of love for Him, not because I'm in this little box that says I have to, otherwise I'm not a good Christian. So again, legalism can creep in in many ways. Again, if you stop giving, actually it should be just the opposite for many of us. Oh, you mean I'm not held to 10%? That's right. Oh, I want to give more. I want to give more. Actually, does anyone have a bulletin? Chris put in a great little quote, and then we'll close. In the very back, it says this. If a person first gives himself to the Lord, all other giving is easy. I like that. That's really great. If you've first given yourself to the Lord, then all the other thing is not legalistic. So again, I would ask you, ask God, Lord, is there areas in my life that I'm legalistic? Thinking that the external box is all it takes. And then the second question is this. And have I transferred that standard my opinion onto other people saying if they don't follow in my footsteps, they're not spiritual. That's very deadly for the unity of a church. Let's stand as we worship him. Father, again, we thank you that you have freed us from the obligations of the law. You have freed us to be able to love and serve one another. Lord, I ask that you would give us wisdom as we Look into our own lives and ask the question, are we legalists? Are we really Pharisees at heart? Because many times we are. Lord, help us to not be judgmental. Lord, again, help us to have high standards. 
but help us to distinguish between what is your standard and what is, as it were, a house standard, our own personal standards. Lord, help us to truly, again, love one another, to be an encouragement. Help us to see when we have a critical, judgmental attitude. Lord, again, we thank you how you have transformed our minds. You have changed our hearts. You have given us a heart that wants to pursue you. Lord, we know at one time our hearts and our minds were worthless and defiled, and yet you have, you have sanctified us and you continue to change us for your honor and glory. I pray that those truths, knowing how, that you loved us first, would change the way that we respond, not only to you in worship, but to each other. May our hearts just have a gratefulness and a patience towards others that would just, just flow out. It would just be so obvious that we would be able to do your work in a very godly way. Again, guide our steps. I pray that during the picnic, we might be able to connect and actually have true fellowship with one another. In Christ's name, amen.